Ezra. We're there. We've made it through a, another series. If you're on there, we're in Ezra 10 today. If you want to go to your uh, Bibles, that'd be great. But what, what a journey we've been on for the last 100 years or so in this book of Ezra, haven't we? I just want to start by recapping everything so far that brings us to the point of this final chapter moment that we're going to have a look at today. I mean, this whole story, if you remember right back to when I started it, it started with Israel essentially being no more, just being in captivity, uh, in, first in Babylon, then in Persia, Syria. And, uh, and then there was a move of the Spirit, wasn't there? The Holy Spirit, do you remember that? Just this wonderful move of the person, eternal person of God that was the Holy Spirit, just awakening this nation again and calling it to go back and rebuild both the temple in Israel under uh, Zerubbabel, uh, later and later moving on to Nehemiah to rebuild the rest of the fortification of the city. So God starts, starts with God just starting something out of nothing. <coughs> Death to life, revival kicked off, all because of the person of the Holy Spirit. Then we saw, as we moved on from that, the people start to establish themselves in the land, didn't we? They start to build the temple, the foundation, and they start to strive. And we saw that they, they initially overcame, but then all of these challenges came to them, challenges within the land. And actually, the discouragement set in for them, and they downed tools. Do you remember that as well? And they put their tools down and they just waited in the land. They didn't continue with the work of God. And then we saw as we moved on how just under the power of the prophecy of Haggai and Zechariah. And we saw that Haggai spoke these plain words, didn't he? And Zechariah spoke these slightly out there words. But just as the Lord moved, as they prophesied in his name, it set that fire alight again in the people. And they stood up and said, yes, we will continue. We'll pick up our tools again and we will complete the work that the God brought us back to this land for. And they completed the temple. And then moving on, after we saw the, the Spirit's dwelling place, the temple re-established in the land, the word of God came in the man Ezra, didn't it? Chris Butland introduced us to Ezra. This man who knew and loved the law of the Lord, which was to be the foundation of the Jewish kingdom, just as the Bible is to be the foundation of our lives. And he comes with his team and his passion and his knowledge to beautify the house of the Lord with the word. And they begin reteaching what the people had forgotten. The ways that the Lord had asked his holy nation to be and live. This set-apart nation which was to be different from every other nation in the world. And then we get to where Chris Butland brought us to a couple of weeks ago. That in this environment where the Spirit and the house of the Spirit was re-established and the Word of God was being taught again, something remarkable started to happen. And it was this. Sin started to be identified and exposed within the people. And for the last couple, and in the last couple of chapters of this book, it's like in this 
place where the Spirit is established and the Word is being taught. It's like God is turning up the fire, the heat of the furnace, and all of that dross, all of the impurities start to come out of the people. All of the things that had just been hidden and accepted as part of their life and their culture as they'd reestablished themselves into the life. The poisons, the impurities started to come out of them. It's in this environment that people began, began to realize that some of the ways they were living were not honoring to God, but were offensive and harmful to them. And one issue we find out comes out above all other issues here at the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. And it's this, the issue of intermarriage. That over their years since their return back to Jerusalem, the people had started to take on wives from the nations around them. And as Butters taught us again, this issue was so great that it caused Ezra to rip his garments in anguish and cry out to God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, O God. For our inequities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. He was so saddened that he and the people had upset God. They just fell down and wept before him. Why was this sin so bad to warrant such a reaction? You know, is it just a massive emotional overreaction? Are God and Ezra just being a bit racist when we look at this? Surely he said that all people were welcomed in. Does he just not like the thought of a multicultural people? Do you know, that's not it. What you have to understand here, that in many ways, intermarriage reflected the sin of sins. It was a symptom and ultimately a cause of the worst illness that can affect God's people. A lack of trust in him. It's a symptom of a greater trust in the beliefs of the world around them than a trust in God. Let me explain. You know, when God formed Israel, his chosen set-apart people, he commanded them as their king not to marry the people in the land of Canaan, the lands around them, because of the impurity and the abominations that those people had done and believed in. He said, do not give your sons and your daughters in marriage to them or seek their way of living. You know, Ezra reminds the people of this command in 9, 11 and 12. Intermarriage was something he had explicitly said was harmful and damaging to them. It would lead them and influence them into a way of living that was harmful to God. Just to explain this, you know, I, I work with a lot or have worked with a lot of young offenders and offenders over my years in, in the probation service. And, uh, and so often when you look at the causes of why they went down those paths, it's because they formed relationships with people who started to influence them, started to teach them things were right that were actually wrong. 
And they ended up just in places that were troubled, making a shipwreck of their life. I'm sure some of you will know people like this, where your heart just cries out for them. If only they hadn't met that person. If only they hadn't got into that relationship with that drug user. If only they hadn't married that person. Their life would have been so different. And God's saying it's like this. This this is like this for the people of the land. This is that issue. But repeatedly, throughout their lives, God's people in the Old Testament chose not to trust his command. They chose not to believe him on this issue. Believe that he was good. And that this command was for their good. And they intermarried again and again and again and again. In fact, if you look back before the point in history we're in, to the nation of Israel's history, we see that this had terrible consequences. The trust, as they did this, of God's people became divided. They began trusting him not as the only true and holy God who had set them free, but as one God amongst many, one truth amongst many. And situations arose as we look back like King Ahab marrying King, uh, Queen Jezebel. And in this marriage, with Jezebel's influence, Jezebel and Ahab attempted to destroy every sign of the one true God amongst God's holy people and replace it with other worship and other gods and other trusts. And Israel's trust in this time shifted almost exclusively onto other things rather than the one true God. And as a result of this change in trust, this flip-flop of commitment in their hearts, prophets in the Bible repeatedly call Israel an unfaithful wife to God who had given himself wholly to her, this nation, committed in his entirety. And you know, the upshot of this lack of faith is so simple. Israel was weakened from the inside and the out. And when dangers came from outside and nations attacked, rather than trusting the one true God who could help them and had proven He would help them time and time again. They started to pray to the other gods, trust the other gods around them. Or they went to another nation like Egypt and they said, help, help me, I'm in trouble. I think they used that voice as well. (laughs) You know, the result of this was there were no more moves of God to save them, just before Ezra's story starts. There was nothing like in Hezekiah's day where God moved and the whole army got taken out. No help came to strengthen this nation in its time of need. And eventually, exile and death of the nation came because of their trust. I mean, this was the issue of issues intermarriage. So at the end of chapter 9, where we get to, where we are right now in our story, is this. Ezra is on his knees because... The people of Israel, the exiles returned, the people who were miraculously brought back into the land. The people to whom 
the prophets came and said, look, there's purpose, keep going, had come to this place where they were into marrying again, where their trust was being affected once more. And where we come to today is the people's response to this issue as it's brought before them. Should we just read it? I'm going to read chapter 10, just 1 to 12, because I think it gives us the, the idea of what's going to go on. It's going to come up on the screen. It says this. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehoahan. Jehoahan. I should practice these names before reading scriptures the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, but neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited." and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month, on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so we must do as you have said. Despite my bad reading of names, do you get the gravity of what's going on here? The moment here is, it's a powerful and it's a hard moment where in response to this deep sin, there is a clear challenge set before the people, a hard challenge, give up your wives, change your ways. And there's two things, just two things just this morning, that I want to dwell on a little bit within this bit of scripture. Firstly, Ezra is so brave in his love of the people. He's an absolute hero. 
not only do we see him get the gravity of this sin for his people and just lie down before God, interceding before his people, and mourning and crying out and ripping his robes for God's forgiveness. But we also see him bravely stand before man and call a spade a spade. This is shown most clearly in verses 10 and 11, where after he calls the whole nation together in the rain, he stands up and proclaims to the people, you have broken faith. You have sinned by marrying foreign women and heaping guilt upon yourselves again. Verse 11, you need to confess this to the Lord quickly and give up your wives from this land. You have not trusted God again. His commandment. You've done the same sin again. You must rectify this quickly. I mean, just take a moment. How exposed was he willing to make himself before the people? He totally stood before them and called them on their sin and called them publicly to drastic action of breaking up their households and undergoing the painful act of separating themselves from their wife. I mean, can you imagine a preacher or a leader coming to you with that in the pouring rain of all places? Now, I would have been first to pick up the biggest stone I could find in the mud, I'm sure, and lob it at him. But such was God's faithfulness. As he stepped out, as he exposed himself, as he followed the call of the law of the Lord on his life, to rebuke and lead, no stones were thrown. I guess I have a, quite a worry about modern Christianity. That we have become a little bit namby-pamby and spineless at times. And that I don't see much of the bravery of Ezra displayed here to one another when we see somebody fall into sin or living in a way that we know is not God's best for them. Especially when what we have to say is not going to win us any popularity contests. When it's going to hurt us to say it. When there's cost and sacrifice and exposure to say it. I'm not sure what this is about, but I do think it's there. Do you know, maybe, maybe we've mistaken Christian love, I don't know, as just supporting or getting alongside people regardless. Rather than loving somebody enough, like Ezra did, to say, that is harmful to your life and your relationship with God, you need to get away from that. You know that porn? Get away from that. It's going to wreck your future relationships with women. It's going to distort how God wants you to see them. Get away from it. You know that guy you've been hanging out with? That girl you've been hanging out with? Who's not your husband, not your wife? Run from that. You know, the way you discourage people in your responses. You look for the worst in people. 
That's not a character trait God wants you to have. He wants you to see the best and encourage. Stop that. You know, your laziness. Man, you've got all these dreams. You're not going to get your dreams and you're not going to build the kingdom of God if you live your life that way. You're not going to do it. Stop it. Step up. Work hard. We don't see hard words delivered in love to shape and build one another up well as part of what it is to be loving. Or maybe we're just afraid. What will they think about me if I bring a hard word? Will people score my preach a little less around a Sunday dinner if I bring a hard word? Maybe they won't come back to freedom if they feel uncomfortable. Will they like me less if I'm more direct? Will they label me as judgmental when it's not my heart? that's That's a hard one. I've definitely had that before where I've tried to do this. You're so judgmental. No, 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 it's not my heart. It's just that that's bad for you. You're judging me. No, I'm not. Listen, I'm the least person to judge you. I know myself. I know, I know on the poor Christian level, I'm like, I'm really, genuinely, do you know, on all of those good things about how often you do this, that and the other, man, Matt Ashworth is somewhere about here. I'm not judging you. Listen, I'm here because of grace. I really am. But I've got to call you on it. Mate, you're so judgmental. No. Oh. We're going to be misunderstood. That's going to happen. People aren't going to like to hear it sometimes. And I think we're afraid of that and afraid of those consequences. But do you know what? Christian love is to be brave like Ezra. Not ever from a position of superiority or judgmentalism, ever. Grace removes that for all of us. But a deep love of God and his worth for people and that relationship in people's lives and a deep love of people that loves them enough to really lie down in the mud and pray for them when they've fallen down and really loves them enough to go to them and say, do you know what, brother? Do you know what, sister? That is not good for you. Change it. Galatians 6 verse 1 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Luke 17, verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Not in the business of holding things against people by any means. Do you see that? As we come, we've got to be careful because we're not in that haughty, powerful position. But we are asked to come. We are asked to speak that hard word. It's love. And had Ezra not loved Israel enough to have done this, the cycle that I spoke about of that nation internally destroying itself and not trusting in God would have continued. Would have continued. If we want to grow strong and true in the Lord of freedom, and really know God's radical love amongst us, then we must learn to be as brave as Ezra and speak the truth and love to one another. That's the first thing I want you to notice. Ezra's a great example for us of a really important point. 
Secondly, I want you to note Israel's response. And it is astounding, given what they're being asked to do. It's astounding. There's no getting around it in this passage. What Ezra was calling the people of God to do here was a jarring and painful thing in any age. I look at this passage and I go, is there not another thing you could do other than this? You know, even when we understand some of the background to this, like I've shared with you, and take into account cultural differences of households. Give up your wives and your children for God. Send them back to the families they came from. Uh, and don't take any further part in relationship with them. It is incredibly costly. It is sacrificial. It is a painfully sacrificial thing that the Lord is asking them to do. With lots of unknowns in it. Lots of faith positions in it. What will happen to them? What will happen to us? How will the nations around there view us? We have made covenants to get some of these wives' agreements. Fear could so easily grip. You could easily see God as not good in this and twist his character. But what is incredible here is there's no hint of bitterness or protest from the people. Instead, as they are rebuked, convicted by the Spirit and the Word, their lack of trust is simply highlighted to them. The difference between the way they are living and the way that God wants them to live as a holy nation becomes apparent. And they take immediate and radical action to repent and change their ways, even when it is this costly. Now, we see it firstly in the first group, don't we, in the temple. When they hear it, they say, let, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of God. And secondly, we see the whole assembly. It is so we must do what you have said. Do you know, in the rest of the passage, the reason I didn't read it today is it's, uh, it's more lists like at the beginning of Ezra here, but they're important lists because they show us how systematically they devised a plan to go through every person who had married a wife and make sure that this great commitment that they make in this emotional moment in the rain was actually carried through. They put in plans and actions so that they do not continue doing the thing that was sin to God. So they make a commitment and they make a plan of how they're going to live their life differently in a new and honouring way to God. And they exact that plan. They commit to it. Truth is, the Bible is not written to pamper us. And a relationship with God or Jesus is not always about having fuzzy, warm feelings inside. Jesus is not the great self-help guru on the planet with you at the centre of his plans to always make you feel like you're okay. Jesus is a mighty king and lord to follow and obey in trust and love by his spirit. He wants to build us into a mighty set-apart people who reflect his glory and holiness, who are a beacon of how good he is 
when we're following him. And the Bible is a tool for transforming us. Sometimes highlighting our sin. It comes colliding into the culture of our day sometimes to highlight to us areas of our lives that are not how our king wants us to live. Just as we, like we see in Ezra here. Yes, there is a constant grace. There is in which we live. God loves us. God loves you deeply. And his grace flows over you. And everyone who knows the power of Jesus' and death and resurrection in their lives are deeply secure, always secure in that love. There's nothing you need to do to add to that. But there's a process of sanctification, purification, transformation of your minds. Just like, you know, muddy water to drink it and for it to be good for people you need to put it through a purifier so it comes out clear and good to drink god wants to do that with us he wants to take us through that purifier so that we ever increasingly are set apart from the sin that the world stands in shining bright as stars in increasing measure housing his glory in our meetings in increasing measure so that we honour him and his goodness rightly. And this means, no matter how old you are in your Christianity, there will be times and points when he points to something in your heart or your life that needs to change. And sometimes this is going to be painful to do. It might come through an Ezra-like rebuke of a brother. I hopefully after this more so. Or just in a time with the word or just the Holy Spirit speaking to you saying this, this is not good. Get free from this chain. Or it might even come from a leader. You know, it's part of our mandate to be slightly jerkish on this one and be like, yeah, this is something you've got to change. We're not doing our jobs right if we're not doing that sometimes. And likewise, you've got to do that back to us. Please. And at these times, there will be a choice. Am I going to be proud? Am I going to be self-righteous? Am I going to criticise the way that rebukes come and be more focused on the fact that they weren't quite their loving self rather than that there was a degree of tr- truth in it? You know, Billy Graham says, no matter who criticised me, I always try and listen first to the kernel of truth in it so that I can be transformed. Do I respond in a pain-avoidant way? Or do I choose to stand apart with God and follow my King Jesus as the people of Ezra did? Committing in your heart wholly to follow him and asking for the strength to do so and planning and deliberately taking steps to change the thing that he's asked you to change. You know, the people here are a perfect example to how God wants you to respond to challenges of purity. Repent, resolve in your hearts to trust God on the matter and put him first, and then work out 
deliberately what we need to change to get rid of in our lives, of that thing in our lives, to kick it out, to run from it? What do we need to sacrifice to kill it off in our lives? So often I think we do the emotional bit, but not the bit afterwards, the actual change thing with God. Listen, just before I wrap up the series, just, can we just stop here just a moment? Sanctification is really something between you and God. He wants to purify you. He wants to put you through that water filter, take out the muck and the rubbish. Maybe it's something you've heard today. Maybe it's something you'll hear as I wrap up. God wants to do this in you. Just let the spirit move just for a second. Not, just let it move on you. Invite God to do what David did. He said, but search me and if there be anything in me, I'm pleasing to you, Lord. I want you just to come by your spirit, highlight it and deal with it in me. So let's take a moment here just to invite the spirit to do that. Spirit, I'll just invite you to come. Lord, we want to be a people following you. We want to be a people truly sanctified by you, Lord. Lord, I know there's places in my heart I've held your arm's length. I'm sorry. Lord God, come on in. Come on deep, Lord God. We want to be changed into the likeness of Jesus by the power of your spirit. Come, Lord God. In Jesus' name. Let's wrap up this great, great series. Have you enjoyed it? Yeah? Yeah. I hope it's blessed you in your life with Jesus. I really do. I've been really struck by it as we've been going through it and some of the lessons from it. You know, uh, Ezra in history stands alone for me as an amazing story of how God moved in the Spirit's power and the Word's effect. But also, there's something else in there, which is why I called this a revival blueprint. That it it really stands as a picture, as you piece it together, of how God starts revival life and then the things you need in your backpack to sustain that revival life that he started in you. They're all there within the story for us to remember. So God's revival life always starts with a move of the Holy Spirit, bringing us from death into life, taking from some nothing, some people in captivity and pulling them into that life that is fresh and full of his glory and purpose. Then as we go, there are always encouragements and victories, but there are always those that would come to discourage us as we learn to live by the Spirit. And we can have these times in our lives of downing tools, not following the King. Then it highlights to us the need to have the Spirit moving amongst us and being part of a people, knowing the spiritual gifts moving, particularly prophecy we heard about, and how they continue to help us keep that revival fire going in our lives as we see the life of God and the challenge of God brought to us. We've got to prophesy lots. They teach us that we need to have spiritual gifts in our lives. And we need the Word and men of the Word building depth and strength into our worldview as a foundation for longevity in our walk with God. It's like healthy eating for a long life with Jesus, the Word. And last but not least, as the Spirit Word grows in us and in us as a community, we must allow these tools of God to transform us into ever-increasing measure of the likeness of Jesus. Highlighting dross and impurity 
and following the King so his glory abounds on earth. Never losing our humility or our bravery in this, but allowing him to shape us. I think these are like all of your great building blocks. They're all the great things, the parts that you need to have in your backpack and your walk with Jesus. In closing, I guess, is your backpack well stocked? I don't know. Are there bits of that as you see this picture of Ezra in there that I'm missing? You know, oh yeah, yeah, no, I've not really got that tool. I've not really got, I've not really got the word in my backpack. Oh yeah, all right, I've not, I've not really got the spirit in my backpack and those things. Yeah, okay, I'm not really open to being transformed into the ever likeness of Jesus. Do you know, it's not in my backpack. I guess I just want to take a moment and say, look, if you recognise something like that, like there is grace huge grace and I guess just open it up and say Lord would you just put this freshly back in my backpack just this morning whatever's just been missing from that revival life in you and say Lord just please let's let's make some plans together Lord I want to change that would you come by your spirit and would you help me I think that's the underlying power of this story thanks for listening God bless you